0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say that we have Giancarlo Casale on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Ottoman Age of Exploration. Now, you certainly have heard of the Age of Exploration. You know that it was led by the Portuguese and the Spanish, and later the English got involved. But really, this is the European age of exploration. There were other ages of exploration. Perhaps we shouldn't even speak of an age of exploration because there were several. The Chinese made it almost all over the globe, centuries before the European age of exploration. Today's book is about the Ottoman age of exploration. And more specifically, it's about how the Ottomans explored the area that we call the Indian Ocean, south all the way into Africa and then east all the way into India, and throughout all parts in between. And in so doing, they ran up against the Portuguese, who were also exploring the area. Both the Ottomans and the Portuguese were looking for spices, and they were also trying to protect what we might call their religious interests. The Ottomans wanted to make sure that Muslims could make their way to Mecca, and the Portuguese, of course, were interested in making sure that Christians could make their way to Jerusalem. John Carlo tells the story of how they interact it's a fascinating read, and it's a great corrective to this notion that there was an era of exploration, that being the European era. There were also others. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Giancarlo. Hello, Marshall. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you very much. Uh, today we are talking to Giancarlo Casale about his new book, The Ottoman Age of Exploration. This cleared up a lot of things for me. I was familiar with the Ottomans, uh, to be honest with you as a Russian historian, but not as familiar as I should have been, but now I know a lot more. I also did not know that the Ottomans um, kind of fought a battle with the uh, Portuguese in the Indian Ocean in the 16th century, something I should have known as an early modernist, I have to tell you, and I blame my graduate program that will go unnamed <laughs> that was very Western-centric. I have to say, if it, if it didn't occur uh, in Berlin or Paris or London, they weren't very interested in it. So uh, uh, my my ignorance is their fault. No, that's really not true. It's, it's my fault. But anyway, Giancarlo's terrific book, uh, as I say, you know, re- really shed light on things that I didn't know much about. And I, if you're interested in the Indian Ocean, as all of us should be at, at this point, I think, then it's a book that you will want to pick up. Uh, it's an excellent read. Giancarlo's a terrific writer, uh, and he's working with some what I think are probably very difficult sources. I've worked with similar sort of sources in the Russian case, and it's always nice to see somebody... Uh, roll up their sleeves and get to work on these things and then, as I said, shed a little bit of light on something that we didn't know a lot about. Giancarlo, why don't you begin the interview, if you would, by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um, Well, first of all, Marshall, thank you so much for having me on the show and uh, for such a a rousing endorsement of my (laughs) book. Uh, I wouldn't blame your graduate program for not having uh, taught you about the Ottomans in the Indian Ocean because... It's uh, actually something that I didn't even know about when I started researching, um, and it was a, a great revelation to me, actually, how much of a story there really was. And so it's a discovery um, that uh, should surprise all of us, and I hope everyone who reads the w- book will be as interested in it as as, uh, as you have been, apparently. But um, in terms of how I got started on the whole thing, it's a very serendipitous route um just despite my italian name i am from madison wisconsin that's where i grew up and i was originally believe it or not a physics major in mm-hmm. college i didn't have any background in um middle eastern studies or even in history i took a couple of history courses just because i was interested and uh, then physics and I had a very bad breakup. (laughs) Um, It took me um, uh, about a year to recover. I actually kind of uh, left school for a while. Um, And uh, I applied for this fellowship to be the Rotary Club Cultural Ambassador to Brazil from uh, Dane County, Wisconsin, which Mm -hmm. is where Madison is, and um, got to go to to Brazil for uh, three months. And basically my job was to take Portuguese classes all day and then on Friday evening I had to go to a different Rotary Club every week and give a speech. The first one was a very, very short speech because we had to give the speech in Portuguese and then by the end of the 12 weeks <laughs> uh, it got uh, better. Um, and Then I went back to school. I switched my major to uh, to history and eventually I applied to graduate school and my idea was to, to study... Um, European history. I wanted to study the Age of Exploration, and it just so happened that um, at the place that I eventually went to graduate school, there was a professor of Ottoman history who uh, saw my application and and he said, you know, there are these government fellowships for strategic languages, and we have them for Turkish and Arabic, and I think that if you um, if you if you switched our joint program in Middle Eastern Studies, you know, you could do something much more original. And my first response was, well, um, I don't really think I'm very interested in that. (laughs) And and he said, well, maybe I haven't explained myself very well. If you switch to the program in Middle Eastern Studies, we can give you these fellowships. And if you don't switch, I don't think that the history department is going to accept you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that made my choice very easy.
1: And uh, that's kind of where it all began.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's well, No, that's a tr- that's actually a terrific story. You know, those Rotary Club fellowships. I pitch those to my undergraduates all the time. Yeah, they're amazing. They're always but, looking for money, and I'm saying, you know, there's money in your own backyard. Exactly. You, you
1: you get to live. I mean, you live with a different family every two weeks while you're down there, and um, that in itself is such a great education. You know, I lived with this old, incredibly rich guy who had a three-story uh, uh, penthouse apartment right by the beach, and I lived with this. Pretty poor family that lived right across the street from the favela, in a really rough part of town. And I kind of saw all kinds of different sides of the of uh, the society down there. And I and I learned a lot uh, of language really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up using it in a way that I don't think anybody could have possibly imagined, which is to study Ottoman history.
0: No, I don't. I don't think. I don't think they could have. No, that's a. It's a terrific connection, though, and it's a good thing that uh, I hope that that fellow that suggested this uh, fellowship for graduate school gets a card from you every year or something. <laughs> well, a box of chocolates name, or <laughs> flour. I don't know is, what.
1: His name is Jamal Kafadar, and he is. Uh, I just saw him yesterday, actually. Uh-huh. Um, he's a kind of the the towering figure of Ottoman studies here in the United States. He teaches at Harvard. And,
0: uh-huh. um, yeah, if it wasn't for
1: him, I would yeah, be doing great. something else with my life.
0: Yep, that is called. You know, often you don't get good advice from advisors. I've been one <laughs> <laughs> and dispensed a lot of bad advice. Uh, but that was a, yeah, that's a that's a sentence or a, a couple of sentences that was, is. A, you should make, have a T-shirt made out of it or something. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, let's talk about the book. How did uh, you move to... Uh, this particular topic and then come to write uh, the Ottoman Age of Exploration? Um,
1: well, I guess when I started grad school, since I was in a uh, program in, in Middle Eastern history, but really totally unprepared for it, you know, I was surrounded by these people that um, had been studying Arabic and Turkish and Persian for years or were from those that part of the world and knew everything about all the political implications of all the scholarship. And um, I was really totally out of my element. I didn't know what I had gotten myself into at all. And so I kind of was looking for something that would give me my own angle. And, um, you know, this this age of exploration thing was something that I had always kind of been interested in just on its own. And um, I started, you know, doing some reading and I couldn't find any um, scholarship at all about, you know, what possible connection there might be between the expansion of the Ottoman Empire, which was growing really, really fast at exactly the same time as the Age of Exploration and, you know, the Portuguese exploration of the Indian Ocean or the Spanish exploration of the New World. Um, there's really only one uh, scholar, a guy named Salih Özbaran, who, um who is a Turkish historian who has always, you know, worked in Turkey. Uh, he had written a couple of books. Um, that were partially based on the Portuguese archives. Way back in the 1960s, he had gone to, to Portugal as a graduate student and had done some work in the archives, and he had some really interesting articles. But besides that, there was nothing at all. And so, you know, I, it occurred to me that this could be something really original for me to work on. I talked about it with a lot of people. Almost everybody said, you know, you're not gonna find anything. <laughs> this guy, Sally Hosberon has already done all the work, and that's the end of the story and uh fortunately i'm kind of i'm kind of pigheaded and so i didn't listen to them and i i kept banging my head against the wall and uh eventually when i got you know the chance to go and get my hands dirty in the archives i i, I was uh, you know, totally taken
0: uh by surprise by how much material i found mm-hmm. 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 no i think it's often the case that people will say that that topic is closed because X scholar worked on it. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's never true. <laughs> right. <laughs> Ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. No, if you go and look at something again, you're going to find something different. It's uh, Yeah,
1: especially when it comes to um, non any, any sort of field that's not Western Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Because it's so... Um, the discrepancy between the, the the development of the fields of Western European history and everything else is just
0: yeah no it's true. no you're quite right about that it's even true in the early modern Russian case there's yeah, sure. just a lot to be found and uh, and since I don't know uh, not to speak out of school but in, sometime in around 1991 uh, Russian history became Russian history from about 1917 to the present um, right. and uh, but that's unfortunate. Especially unfortunate for me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but in, in any event, uh, one of the things that you open the book with is, I guess, the thing that you open the book with is actually a comparison between this very well trod ground concerning the what we call, without uh, adjectival modification, the age of exploration, uh, right. uh, Meaning um, the, the the Western European age of exploration, and uh, what the Ottomans did. Maybe you could talk a little bit about those two things and how you compare them.
1: Well, um, the, 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 the thing that's really um, interesting about the Ottoman case is that we think of it kind of the default way that we think about the Ottoman Empire is as uh, an Islamic empire that's just kind of the successor to all the other Islamic empires that have sort of always occupied the same territory. Um, and in fact, it's it's not that way at all. It's a, um, a state that... Started out at the end of the Middle Ages, you know, in the 14th century as a very small little principality that was, um, it had its main political base in what is now Greece and the Balkans. So it was geographically a European state that then expanded outwards from there and expanded into more of uh, southwestern Europe, but also from that place conquered first all the lands of the Arab world, North Africa, Egypt, the Levant, Iraq, uh, and then from there uh, started to push even further into the Indian Ocean world, Ethiopia, Yemen, the Persian Gulf. And uh, it it was, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that it was really surprising that nobody had ever made the connection between that kind of expansion to the the East and the expansion of the Portuguese and the Spanish to the West. And the way I start the book is by saying, you know, imagine instead of the Ottomans, imagine that the Ottomans had never conquered Constantinople and that it was the Byzantine Empire that had done exactly the same things that the Ottoman Empire did in, in the real world. Had it been the, the Byzantines that had conquered the Middle East and then expanded into the Indian Ocean and Sent voyages of exploration to Southeast Asia and um, uh, big navies to India and so forth, and done all the things that the Ottomans actually did. It's hard to imagine that historians wouldn't have tried to understand that within the same context mm-hmm. as a Portuguese and Spanish yep. exploration. Mm-hmm. And so, sort of from that starting point, I try to follow the story of what the Ottomans did always with that in mind. Uh-huh. And, um,
0: uh, I think it made a good story. Yeah, no, it definitely did. Let, let me uh, take just one step back, and I, mean, I feel like in the American mind, at least, I won't speak for other people, that uh, certain categories get mixed up and conflated, and the, the two that are always conflated are Arab and Muslim. Right. And so this is an introduction for this is a, this is an enticement for you to talk about the Ottomans, who are not Arabs. Right. Yeah. Well, this, this is an
1: a, a extremely important question, and it's also um, a very difficult one to answer because one of the fascinating things about the Ottoman Empire for us and one of the things that I really try to communicate also to my students in my classes is that the Ottoman Empire was not an, an ethnic state. And in fact, one of the reasons why it was so successful is precisely the way in which it was designed to avoid any kind of an um, ethnic bias. So I think there's some kind of statistic that if you count all of the countries on the map today that were at least partly encompassed by the Ottoman Empire at its greatest extent, it's almost 40 different countries. And these are these are countries that are we now consider totally European, like Hungary and Greece, and countries that we would consider Arab countries, like Egypt, and uh, uh, and even countries like Ukraine, you know, or parts of Russia, or parts of Poland. These are all all these different areas with all these different. Ethnicities, but also different religions. There are Christians. There are different kinds of Christians: Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, Jews, different kinds of Muslims. They they were all in the Ottoman Empire, and um, the most fascinating, in some ways, part of the story is that, in the time that I'm studying, which is the 16th century, the period when the Ottoman Empire was growing at its fastest, believe it or not in order to be a fully enfranchised member of the ottoman elite which we we typically think of as being turkish right we you always hear in the books the ottoman turks mm-hmm. well you actually had to be a non-muslim non-turkish speaking foreign Slave. <laughs> you can believe that. That was kind of the, the, the CV that you had to have in order to be a fully enfranchised member of the Ottoman elite. And the way that that worked is that um, you had to be a slave of the sultan in order to live in the palace with the sultan. And the palace of the sultan was uh, kind of like the West Point Academy of the Ottoman Empire. So they would take these boys... Some of them were were boys that pirates would capture at sea. Some of them were boys that were kind of taken as attacks from the Christian villages of the Balkans that the Ottomans controlled. Some of them were people that were taken uh, in battle. Some of them were people that voluntarily wanted to be a part of the system. And these people were selected. They picked the best and the brightest of these boys, and they sent them to the palace where they were raised in the sultan's household. They got the best education that the that existed at the time, and they were trained uh, you know, in literature and the arts, but also in warfare and architecture and everything. And then these people became the people who ran the empire, the generals, the administrators, the tax collectors, the Navy commanders. And the entire point was that because they had come from outside, because they were foreigners originally, they didn't exist except for their connection with the Sultan. They had no families that they could fall back on. They had no regional affiliations that they could fall back on. Uh, They had no other points of allegiance. And so they were completely loyal to the Sultan and he could depend on them totally. And even more importantly, their children couldn't inherit the status because their children would be Ottomans. Mm -hmm. So they didn't even have the risk of trying to set things up for their kids rather than thinking of the welfare of the state. Mm -hmm. So this is this really totally strange and unexpected system for constructing an empire. For, from the Western European experience, it seems almost impossible to believe. Uh, and that's why I think we have a lot of trouble even finding a vocabulary to talk about these people, because it's, it's just uh, so normal for us to think about politics as working through ethnicity.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's not the case in the Ottoman system mm-hmm. at
0: all. Mm-hmm. Ethnicity or families. Yeah, I, I would say that's, that's true. So what, what, uh, what are the origins of the word Ottoman? Why do they call themselves Ottomans? The
1: original member of the dynasty was a guy named Osman, and uh, in it's an Arabic name, and originally in Arabic it's Osman, which is with a th sound, but Turkish people can't pronounce T-H, so they say S instead, so his name was Osman. And then Italians, most of what we learned originally from the Ottomans way back in the 14th and 15th century, they couldn't say T-H either, but they said t instead of T-H, so mm-hmm. the way that they said Osman was Ottomano, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's where we get the name Ottoman. And so really, it's, it's just the name of a person. It's mm-hmm. the, the original founding member of the dynasty. So the Ottomans are um, like the Habsburgs. They're just a dynasty. They're not an ethnicity. They're not a people. Mm-hmm. It's just a, a loyalty to a particular family
0: that descends from this guy, Osman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did they convert to um, Islam that is when did the royal family convert to Islam well the, the royal
1: family was I mean Osman was himself a, a Muslim mm-hmm. but one of the things that is uh, particularly interesting about the Ottomans is that uh, in addition to having this system of slave elites the Ottoman Sultan himself never married he only had children with slave women. And again, in order to be a slave woman, you had to be a foreign non-Muslim. And this was pretty consistent all the way through the Ottoman dynasty. So every single Ottoman sultan's mother was actually a Christian Mm -hmm. all the way throughout the dynasty. And even well into the the history of the Ottoman Empire, the uh, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, Most, the majority of the the population of the empire was also Christian. So, again, here it's, we think of the Ottoman dynasty as being sort of equivalent to the Ottoman state as, an, and the, as a Muslim state. But it's a bit more complicated than that. There's mm-hmm. a, a constant um, a history of uh, interrelationship between the Muslim and non-Muslim population of the empire, and also the Muslim and non-Muslim
0: elements of the dynasty itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's set the scene internationally a little bit before we have the uh, Ottomans and the Portuguese cross swords. Uh, What was the kind of lay of the land strategically in that area of the world, what we kind of generally call the Middle East at this time? Who are the Ottomans surrounded by? Who are they interested in?
1: Okay, so let's let's go back to 14 let's take it back to 1497 which would be the year that Vasco da Gama sailed around Africa and reached uh, the Indian Ocean for the first time. At that at that point, the Ottoman Empire was still quite a small state. It really only encompassed um, what we would consider today to be Anatolia and the Balkans. So basically, Turkey, Greece, and um, you know Bulgaria, and a couple of other countries, uh, in on the modern map. And the big powerhouse in the Middle East was this other state called the Mamluk Sultanate which was uh, based in Cairo and which controlled most of uh, the Arab world, Um, Mecca and Medina, uh, some of North Africa, Syria, Jordan, um, Israel, Palestine, all those places were all under the rule of this Mamluk Sultanate. And the fact that the Mamluk Sultanate controlled Jerusalem is actually very important because this is an an easy thing to forget, but Columbus when he sailed to the west, his original motivation for sailing to the west was the following. He told uh, Ferdinand and Isabella that by sailing west, he would be able to discover a, a fast route to the Indies, which would be able allow the Spanish to bypass the, the Mamluks who controlled the existing routes to the Indies, and they therefore had a stranglehold on the spice trade. This would make the Spanish very rich, and once the Spanish were very rich, they would be able to raise a big army and invade the Mamluk Sultanate and conquer Jerusalem. So it was understood as a crusade. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the Portuguese had almost the same idea when they sailed around Africa. Their idea was to sail around Africa, reach the Indian Ocean, which would allow them to block off the spice trade in between the Indian Ocean and the Red Sea, which is where the Mamluks controlled the spice trade. This would weaken the Mamluks and make the Portuguese powerful, at which point they would raise a big army, invade Egypt, and conquer Jerusalem. So they also were understanding their mission as a kind of a crusade. And the ironic thing is that, in some sense, what the Portuguese did actually worked. They sailed around Africa, they blocked off trade to the Red Sea, they weakened the Mamluks, but then the Ottomans conquered Egypt instead of the Portuguese. They got there first. And it's at this point that the direct confrontation between the Portuguese and the Ottomans really starts. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, at this moment when the Ottomans conquer Egypt, gain uh, a foothold on the Indian Ocean world for the first time, and it's just after the Portuguese have also arrived and have started this strategy of trying to control uh,
0: the trade of the region. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that uh, there are two sort of structuring interests here that both the Portuguese and And the Ottomans share. And one is religious and one is economic. Uh, The religious one is access to holy sites. Right. Yeah, and then the economic one is the spice trade.
1: Exactly. And these are inextricably connected with one another. There's this famous uh, phrase that Vasco da Gama, when he first got off the boat in India, much to his astonishment, he was met by two guys from Morocco (laughs) who both understand Portuguese. (laughs) And they, they said to him, you know, what... The devil has brought you here. And he famously replied, I have come in search of Christians and spices.
0: <laughs> that's, that's a really remarkable story. Let me <laughs> just say that. Yeah. He must have been surprised to see those guys.
1: <laughs> yeah. And not only surprised, he was horrified. Yeah. Sure.
0: Right. He got beat to the punch. Yeah. Um, exactly. So uh, the Portuguese are very famous as navigators They are uh, great shipbuilders uh, and they could sail all over the place uh, in what seemed to us, uh, well, to historians at the time, to be very modern ships. The Ottomans, we don't usually think about them as great shipbuilders and navigators. Tell us a little bit about the uh, Ottoman um, Navy. Navy, yes.
1: Well, the Ottomans are uh, uh, obviously originally a Mediterranean power. And one of the things that we have learned. Over the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of research into the history of the technology of shipbuilding. And one of the things that we've learned is that we used to have this idea that Europeans built sailing ships, and Muslims built, me, and Muslims built uh, old-fashioned galleys. In other words, ships that are powered by oars instead of by sails. But there's been a lot of research into the history of of shipbuilding in the Mediterranean which has shown that, in fact, what's really going on is that people in the Mediterranean build galleys and people in the Atlantic build sailing ships. And that's because the conditions of the Mediterranean are such that in that environment galleys actually work better. Mm -hmm. So The the best example of that is the Spanish who obviously have uh, an Atlantic power and they're building these colonies in the New World and when they do that, they build sailing ships. But they're also a Mediterranean power and they're fighting these big battles with the Ottomans and there they they only build galleys. So it's really more a question of the uh, environment in which you're operating rather than um, knowing or not knowing how to build sailing ships. Now, in the case of the Ottomans, there's a little bit of a learning curve because when they first show up in, in the Red Sea, they, you know, they have no experience with this part of the world before. They don't know the climactic conditions. They don't know anything about the monsoons. They don't know anything about Portuguese ships, and they they really don't know how to operate. So their first forays into the region, um, they're really still operating with the mindset of a Mediterranean power. They try to build these great big fleets composed of, uh, you know, war galleys with lots and lots of people and lots and lots of supplies and lots and lots of uh, cannons, which they are hoping to just transport across very long distances and then drop off somewhere and take over an enemy fortress. Kind of all the big battles of the 16th century Mediterranean are, are operated in this way, the siege of Malta or the siege of Tunis or so on and so forth. These are kind of amphibious assaults. So the Ottomans, they try this a couple of times. They send this huge expedition to India in 1538, about 70 ships, about 10,000 people, hundreds of uh, siege cannons. And this is especially impressive when you think that in order to build this fleet in Suez, which was their main um, Red Sea arsenal, they had to carry all of the wood from Anatolia, load it onto ships, sail it across the Mediterranean, Loaded onto camels and carry it across the desert and then build the fleet in Suez and this is a simple result of the fact that nowhere in the Middle East are there any trees because it's a desert you can't build ships without trees so this is a quite extraordinary effort that they can carry across this kind of a distance enough wood and supplies to build 70 ships to carry 10,000 men in order to sail to India and and conquer this Portuguese fortress incredibly expensive undertaking it fails they can't capture the Portuguese fortress, and there's another, uh, another couple of very, very big, expensive failures uh, of this nature that the Ottomans try to do. They try to seize Hormuz, which is another Portuguese fortress. That also fails. Over time, they start to learn how things work. They start to learn that the Portuguese are using sea power in a different way in the Indian Ocean. It's not about controlling forts. It's really about controlling the sea itself. And as they stay in the region and they figure out how the Portuguese are operating, the patterns of trade, the patterns of, um, of uh, the winds and the monsoons, and they make alliances with people in the region who are familiar with the situation, they develop different strategies. And interestingly, although they experiment with building some sailing ships more or less like the, the ships the Portuguese use. What they eventually find is that by using a different kind of galley, a different kind of oared ship, smaller and lighter and faster, they can actually use the monsoons to their advantage because by using oared ships, when they know which direction the wind is going to blow, and this is something that the monsoons allow them to do, they can actually attack Portuguese sailing ships and then escape by rowing into the wind. And. Uh, Once they figure this out, they really are able to attack the Portuguese head on by using the sea and sea power to control the patterns of trade rather than trying to conquer fortresses And this is a a, a critical insight. And once they really institute this new way of um, conducting warfare at sea, they're able to bring an end to the Portuguese um,
0: blockade of the Red Sea and to their control of the spice trade in the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's impressive how quickly they got up to speed. I should also say that, again, with reference to my graduate program, I think the only thing that I learned about Ottoman naval forces... During my graduate career, and I'd say it's probably still true in many graduate programs, is uh, about the Battle of Lepanto, (laughs) which does not put the Ottoman Navy in a very good light. And I I think I blame, actually, I don't blame my graduate program. I I blame Ferdinand (laughs) Braudel, who pays a lot of attention to the Battle of Lepanto, where the Ottomans did not do well. So yeah,
1: uh, the interesting thing about that is the Battle of Lepanto is just about the only battle that the Ottomans lost <laughs> during the entire history of warfare in the 16th century
0: Mediterranean. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it's the only one that anyone's ever heard of.
0: Right, exactly. Well, when I, you know, when I tell the story of my college basketball career, I talk about the one game we won. I don't, t- <laughs> right. I don't yeah, talk exactly. about the, the many, many we lost. Uh, so, so in any event, the. And then you kind of find something remarkable, and this I was particularly interested in this, is that um, uh, suddenly the Portuguese and the Ottomans are, are kind of doing business. They, they, started, they, they begin to do diplomacy. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So this is uh, just as, in, as, as an important part of the story as the warfare. Uh, as soon as uh, the Ottomans really are kind of established in the region and, um, and it becomes clear to at least some of the Portuguese that they're not going anywhere, And that moreover, they have some structural advantages, which is that, you know, they control the shorter route between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. And they have uh, some kind of critical alliances with uh, some of the Muslim populations in the region. People want to start doing deals. And um, I think a a, a, a part of the story that I really tried to emphasize that I think had had not been emphasized before Mm -hmm. is the, the fact that as in any political system, there are factions. You know in the United States, it's not like everybody agrees on what our foreign policy or economic policy or our taxation policy should be right we 've got people all across the spectrum, and they 're all defending their own interests and In the Portuguese case, this was definitely also true. There were people who lived in the Indian Ocean itself who had uh, you know a lot of vested interests in trade and they wanted to be able to pursue their own interests and they They realized that by having good relations with the Ottomans this would help them. But then there were other people who, you know, were still very attached to this idea of the Crusade or maybe they had investments that depended on the Portuguese continuing to block trade to the Red Sea so that it would favor instead the route around Africa or for whatever reason, they wanted to continue the struggle. So there was a very intense kind of um, ideological and policy debate going on among different factions within the Portuguese Empire and crucially the same was also true in the case of the Ottomans there were these different factions in the Ottoman Empire and there were some people um, who had been very invested in Ottoman expansion in the Indian Ocean and who really were very eager to work out some sort of a deal with the Portuguese because it was also their best interest but other people who were their rivals who had vested interests elsewhere in the empire uh, who hoped to continue the struggle or to cut off trade precisely because they saw this as a way of hurting their rivals for power in, in the Ottoman context. So there are, there are factions within each of these poles of a competition that um, really played a critical role in determining the, the contours of uh, the negotiations for peace or the, um, the uh, uh, ideologies of warfare or just the basic um, currents of uh, relationships between the two the two states, and I tried to kind of um, bring this to the fore a little bit by following individual personalities and sketching out their uh, web of alliances and their interests
0: in both the Portuguese and the Ottoman cases mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let me ask this question since I don't really know I mean I kind of pretend that I know. When we talk about the spice trade, what are we talking about exactly? What What is being conveyed and how much money is being made? How is it divvied up? Who are the producers? Where is it distributed from and to? That kind of thing?
1: Right. Well, there are, I mean, the main place that uh, pepper is the main spice that's being treated. It's by far the most valuable spice. And it seems strange to us that spices could have been so important because these days you go to the supermarket, you buy some spices, cost a couple of bucks they last you several months that's sort of the end of the story it doesn't seem to be that important but back then they didn't have you know a lot of industrial products there weren't that many different things that you could buy and among the things that you could buy there weren't that many things that were non-perishable and that very small quantities were valuable and spices really fit this bill spices don't go bad and you only need a little bit, so even if you, even if you spend a little bit of money for a little bit, the cargo of a ship is worth a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, for long-distance trade, they were really the goods par excellence. And what also made them strategically interesting is that they don't grow everywhere. There are only a couple of places that you can get black pepper. Uh, the main place being the Malabar coast of India. There are only a couple of places that you can get cloves or or nutmeg, which would be the spice islands of Indonesia, only really one place that you can get cinnamon, which would be uh, the island of uh, Sri Lanka. So there were these strategic points that almost had a total monopoly on the production of these spices. And uh, once you can find a way of being able to transport these across very long distances, you have the potential to make a lot of money. Because, uh, you know, you don't need much cinnamon to flavor your fancy meal. And so even if you buy a couple of pounds, it can last for Mm -hmm. years. Uh, So there were a couple of places in the the Indian Ocean that had these monopolies on these different spices. And before the Portuguese arrived in the Indian Ocean, they only got to the Mediterranean by one route, which is that they would be brought by these um, different communities of, of Muslim merchants who lived all around the Indian Ocean, and who had a natural pre-existing trade network that they followed to the Red Sea. And this is for the simple reason that all Muslims, at least once in their life, if they have the means, have the obligation to go on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is in the Red Sea. And the way that a lot of these merchants would pay for their trip would be to bring some of these spices with them and then sell them in Mecca for a profit, and that would pay for their trip to the Holy Land. Mm -hmm. Now, the Mamluk Sultanate, which we've already talked about, controlled this area, and they knew that all these spices that are coming through aren't going to go anywhere else except through the Red Sea. And so they milked it for all it was worth. They had a really, really rigorous taxation system that was designed to milk as much profit out of this captive trade in spices as they possibly could, which made spices in Europe extremely expensive and which provided a motivation for people to do crazy things like sail around Africa yeah. in order to try to break the monopoly. I mean, uh, it's, it's very important to remember that uh, what the Portuguese did by sailing around Africa, it wasn't some kind of... Um, a vacation cruise. (laughs) You know, these are, it took between eight months, uh, at the, the short end, all the way up to a year and a half on the long end to make the journey from Lisbon to India. Um, during the course of that journey, in some cases, the Portuguese would make landfall only twice. So they're in a filthy, diseased ship for an entire year. Sometimes, almost without interruption. People are getting scurvy. People are getting all kinds of other infections. The wastage rate, which is the technical term for the percentage of the crew that would be dead by the end of the journey, was somewhere around 20% on a typical voyage. Hmm. So, so one in five people on a ship that left Lisbon would typically be dead by the time they reached India. These are high stakes expeditions, and they don't make any sense unless we realize, first of all, how much money there was potentially to be made, but also how desperate these people were Mm -hmm. for, 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 you know, for some kind of uh, economic opportunity. This doesn't make sense unless we keep in mind that these people are are actually desperate. They're not people who are operating from a position of power. They're actually, Mm -hmm. in some sense, operating from a position of desperation. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting I I didn't know the wastage rate was so high I mean, I should have known that, I guess Uh, Let me ask you a question that I don't know if you're prepared to answer But uh, I'm prepared to ask it Okay. And and it's this Um, We've talked about the Portuguese, they were in the Indian Ocean And we've talked about the Mamluks They were in the Indian Ocean And we've talked about the Ottomans, they were in the Indian Ocean. But there are two players here, which I, as an early modernist, know a little bit about that I have not heard anything about. And one was the, the Mughals, and the ah. other is the Safavids. You know, as a Russianist, right. we hear a lot about the Safavids. The yeah. Muscovites love the Safavids. They, right. they wanted to be the Safavids, but who wouldn't really, I think, <laughs> um, if you know anything about the Safavid court. Uh, so what, where where were they? What were they up to?
1: Well, the Mughals are both, in both cases, they they become a little bit more important kind of later on in the story. Uh, The Mughals don't have an outlet onto the Indian Ocean until the 1570s. Uh, During the 1570s, the the Emperor Akbar, who is the third emperor in the dynasty, captures the King Sultanate of Gujarat, which is the the sultanate on the coast of uh, northwestern India, and that's in 1573 and at that point the Mughals start to become very actively interested in the Indian Ocean and in fact almost immediately they start jockeying for position with the Ottomans. Akbar starts calling himself he starts saying that he is the protector of the holy cities, not the Ottomans. He starts sending massive uh, quantities of uh, alms and donations for the poor and for the nobles of Mecca and Medina. He sets up ships that will bring any Indian Muslim pilgrim who wants to make the Hajj to Mecca and back again for free. What a deal. Yes. <laughs> these are the golden days. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the whole point of this is really be- that he wants to show that, you know, he, he can one up the Ottomans at their own game. If they want to, if they want to play the grand universal sovereigns, able to protect Islam from the depredations of the infidel by protecting the holy cities, well, he can do even better. The Safavids, um, it, they're not quite as directly involved because uh, the centers of Safavid power again are to the north, yeah. closer to Russia. Um, They don't have such close connections with uh, the the Persian Gulf and with the the Indian Ocean world until later. There was this uh, very powerful Safavid Shah, Shah Abbas, who um, came to power more or less the same time as Akbar, a little bit later. And he's the one that built this port, Bandar Abbas, which means the port of Abbas, which is still the most important Iranian port on the Persian Gulf. And that was really part of a very self-conscious effort to become more directly involved in in Indian Ocean trade. Um, He had a close alliance with the British, who were also just arriving to the Indian Ocean at that time. And together, they expelled the Portuguese from Hormuz. This is all something that happened in the early 17th century. So it's really kind of the next chapter in the
0: story uh, after the point where my book leaves off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. No, that's I always have to ask about the Safavids and the Mughals. I feel like they they get (laughs) short shrift even shorter than the Ottomans because they're <laughs> no I mean the Mughals especially get short
1: shrift the Safavids I'm not quite as sympathetic to them I could get into trouble for this but uh, demographically these things are, are um, demographically you might get the impression in uh, textbooks about Islamic history that the Ottomans, the Mughals, and the Safavids are these three big empires and that they're just about equivalent in size but they're not the Ottomans in the year 1600, had a population of about 35 million, probably best estimates, which is actually surprisingly low, it's quite quite a bit lower than you, one might guess. The Mughal Empire, at the same time, had a population of at least 100 million, and probably mm. significantly more. So it was a, a much, much larger empire than the Ottomans. And the Safavids, believe it or not, probably only had about 4 million people. In, in the whole empire. So it's, it's so low that it almost doesn't qualify as an empire. But despite the low sort of demographic presence of the Safavid um, state, they had an exponentially greater cultural influence. The Safavids really were kind of like um, the equivalent of, uh, uh, of the Florentines in the Renaissance Europe. Their literary traditions, their artistic traditions, yeah. their painting traditions, uh, everything that they did had uh, such a, an important impact on the neighboring civilizations of the Ottomans and the Mughals that they really kind of are included in the same category for that reason
0: rather than demographic or military strength. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think one thing that we also should mention while we're talking about explorations of the non-European kind is the, uh, and this is something I know almost nothing about, but you mentioned it in the book, so I think it, it bears discussion, or at least mention, and that is the Chinese themselves and one of the great I think, might-have-beens of history. Mm-hmm. The Chinese were in the Indian Ocean. Absolutely. And, in
1: fact, this is um, this is something that rarely gets discussed in terms of the, the Chinese expeditions, which were themselves unbelievable. I mean, they, they, in terms of the scale of those undertakings, Chinese expeditions dwarf anything that either the Ottomans or any European power came up with uh, at any point in the early modern period. We're talking about just literally... Tens of thousands of people, um, hundreds of ships going all across the Indian Ocean. Uh, I, I think that the, I read a statistic somewhere that the Admiral Ching He's seventh expedition, this was the last Chinese expedition to India in the 1420s, had more people than the capital. Of Portugal. <laughs> the population of Lisbon was about 20,000 people, yeah. and there were 30,000 people in, in that fleet. So this is a, an incredible thing. And one other aspect about it that is fascinating to consider, but are rarely discussed um, in terms of the new scholarship on, on these expeditions, is that Cheng He himself, the admiral that led all of these expeditions, was a Muslim. Huh. His father, he, he was a eunuch who had been uh, sort of captured and, and uh, brought into the Ming system, more or less in the same way that the Ottomans brought in um, uh, these uh, slave boys into their palace. Uh, his father was named Muhammad. He was from Central Asia. And that really helps us to understand what part of what he was trying to do, because during his last voyage, he sailed all the way to Yemen, and then he sent a delegation on the Hajj. Wow, Mecca and Medina. So again, it's it's kind of uh, the same logic. It's uh, empire that's trying to uh, assert some kind of a a claim to a a sovereignty that extends beyond its borders, that involves following the trade routes. But in the end, it's also about religion. It's Mm -hmm. about pre-existing hajj network, these pilgrims that are following uh, these maritime trade paths in order to get to Mecca and Medina ultimately
0: for religious purposes. Mhm. Mhm. That's I I just find that absolutely fascinating. So, uh, tell us what you think the legacy of this struggle between the Portuguese and the Ottomans was for the a little bit later period. I think that, you know, the Dutch start to arrive shortly, don't they, and then mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. so how does this play out for the Ottomans?
1: I mean, eventually the Ottomans themselves start to be less uh directly involved in the indian ocean region and here where i would in fact differ a little bit from a lot of my colleagues in the field of ottoman history there's been um, a big debate in ottoman history about the decline thesis the idea that the ottoman empire had this golden age in the 16th century and then things just started to go bad after that and were relentlessly bad for the rest of Ottoman history until the empire finally collapsed in 1923. now my colleagues have pointed out, rightly enough, that 400 years is a pretty long time <laughs> of constantly collapsing. And uh, that might make sense to, instead of asking why, they were declining all the time to ask how they were able to last for so long. And one of the things that they point out is that there really wasn't um, uh, territorial loss during the period of decline until much later than one would expect. It's really only in the the end of the 18th century that the the European lands of the empire started to break away and and, um, become uh, independent states or part of European states. In the Indian Ocean, though, things are uh, a little bit different. And here you see that the Ottomans have territorial losses right, right from the beginning. I mean, they have some critical territories that they control, uh, the province of Yemen, um, coastal lands of Ethiopia, uh, Lhasa, which is a province sort of on the south shore of the Persian Gulf, um, and they lose these in the early 17th century, and they they never take them back. Mm -hmm. And without those provinces, they really don't have the same direct contact with the Indian Ocean world that they did before. And so the narrative of Ottoman influence in the Indian Ocean is... Unfortunately, a little bit more like the old-fashioned narrative of the Ottoman Empire generally, which is the 16th century is the high point, and things are sort of downhill from there. Mm -hmm. That said, I think that um, what the Ottomans do in the 16th century has a lot of long-term legacies in in later periods of history. And I think the most important one is that in in the process of fighting against the Portuguese, the Ottomans developed... This idea, ideology of the caliphate. What they do is they tell um, these various Muslim communities of the Indian Ocean, you know, the Portuguese are infidels. They are coming here and trying to directly prevent you from being able to perform your duties as Muslims and travel to and from Mecca and Medina. And we control Mecca and Medina, and we are here to defend your interests. But in return you need to accept us as somehow your overlords even if you don't live in ottoman territory you still owe us some kind of an allegiance and the ottomans are surprisingly successful at convincing a lot of different muslim populations in the indian Ocean that this makes sense and so you have mosques in local uh, muslim communities all around the region places as far away as uh, sumatra uh, or the Maldives, or uh, the the um, uh, Swahili coast, uh, and according to some sources, even in China, where people are spontaneously ha- hello yeah no I'm still here yeah where people are spontaneously having the Ottoman sultan's name read in uh, in their mosques on Friday, and this is something that lives on, even though the Ottomans themselves disappear. The idea that uh, there is this sort of political unity of Muslims anywhere, everywhere is something that different states try to tap into. The Mughals play around with it for a, a certain period. Uh, the, the Moroccan dynasty, the Moroccan sultans try to tap into it at different points. And it's, in fact, it's still alive today, this idea of the universal caliphate as, mm-hmm. as a central part of uh, the ideology of political Islam is so something that I see in my own students. In Minnesota, we have a pretty big Muslim population. When I have my Ottoman history class on the first day, I always ask, you know, why are you taking this class? And, uh, and I always have some Muslim students that will tell me it's because the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Sultans were the last legitimate caliphs of Islam. Hmm. 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 And um, it's, it's a very interesting and important step in, in the globalization of political ideology. And, and it's produced at the same moment in which the very first European overseas empires are also being formed. So in that sense, I, I really think it's, it's a critical chapter in understanding how we got to where we are today, which is this world of, uh, of uh, really
0: globalized um, political existence for, mm-hmm. for everybody on the planet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a moment in your book that reminded me of something that I'd studied many, many years ago that's positively... I, I, the only word that comes to mind is touching, and that is the Ottomans negotiating with the Muscovites in the 16th century for safe passage of Muslims on the uh, Upper Volga in Kazan right. to uh, to Mecca right, to right. make the Hajj. I mean, people, do you have any idea how far that is? I mean, yeah, and, <laughs> and 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 it, one should add
1: this is in conjunction with these two canal projects. Yeah. Right? The, the Ottomans have this idea they're going to build a canal between the Volga and the Don rivers, yeah. and they're going to build a Suez canal so that these people from Central Asia can travel on the Hajj
0: totally by water. These were good ideas. Yeah, they are, were later done. Yeah. <laughs> They <laughs> deserve more credit, but I just th- you know I just think of that as because you know from the Muscovite perspective, it's usually uh, there's a sort of conflict between the Ottomans and the, and the Muscovites. I think that's a little bit overblown, but this um, yeah this negotiation about safe passage was really sort of touching. And the Muscovites said, "Yeah, sure, of course, you can do it," and mm-hmm. and so on and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. forth. So it was yeah, it was uh, it was uh, forward thinking. I don't want to put it in that way, but it was um, it was very humane right. on everybody's part. Yeah, it to get them there and, and back.
1: It, it was also. Um it was also the kind of thing that I don't think would have happened before the 16th century. I don't think people were quite as uh, aware of the, um, the connections between parts of the world in such direct terms as they were in the 16th century. Yeah, and I no. think that that's true. I mean, we've all known that that's true of the, of the European powers. But I think it also is becoming true of states like the Ottoman Empire, but uh-huh. also, you know, Muscovy and uh, Central Asian um, principalities and really everybody in this uh, Eurasian world is is being forced to think in different terms about where they are in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly – I think if you study Eurasia long enough, you realize that um, it really is a, a highway. That's the wrong metaphor. But you, you can move around on it pretty effectively, around it and over it. Right. Uh, yeah. If you know the right languages and people – and religions and the language you wanted to know was some sort of Turkish would be good. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that that was excellent. Then later Russian and obviously there are Muslims all the way across the Silk Road all the way into China. Right. So you could yeah. move effectively, you know, in a kind of safe passage. In a way, you just couldn't in the Christian world. It was just not possible. Absolutely. You can move vast dis- distances over Eurasia with nothing but Turkish and and uh, a little knowledge of uh, of the Prophet. You could really go a long way. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. And, that, and that is and, remarkable.
1: And the the link with uh, the voyages of exploration are explicit because when, when Columbus sailed west, he had with him Marco Polo's travels.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And his whole motivation for wanting to reach China was that he wanted to get to the court of the great Khan of China as Marco Polo had. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Marco Polo had been able to do that by traveling the other way. That's right.
0: That's right. Well, I'm smiling on this end of the uh, microphone. Doesn't do any good on radio, really. But I just think this is a terrific book, and I, I hope that people read it. We've been talking to uh, Giancarlo Casale today about his book, The Ottoman Age of Exploration. I really encourage you to go out and buy it and read it because it is a kind of an eye-opening experience to see a really vi- you know a really vibrant um, a, a Middle Eastern power kind of setting up a world of its own, and and uh, y- you know it's it's not it's not as if it's the case that Uh, that history we used to say this in graduate school actually you know that um history is all west of the Elba it's really not <laughs> people don't even people don't even know where the Elba is anymore yeah, right. i think but that was yeah. so, so in any case i think it's a terrific book and I, I really love the story about how you found your way into this particular topic it's a really it's a it's a really terrific uh, it's a really terrific tale for anybody interested in becoming a historian so i just want to say thank you for writing the book and thank you for being on the show but before i let you go i want to ask our traditional final question on new books in history and that is what are you working on now Okay, well, I've, I've got two
1: things that I'm working on right now. One of them is um, a translation. It's a, a, a book called The Prisoner of the Infidels, and it's actually the first autobiography ever written in Ottoman Turkish. Huh. And um, it, it was written by a soldier who was captured right after the second siege of Vienna in the uh, uh, 1680s, and he subsequently spent about 10 years as a captive, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, first under pretty harsh conditions, and then uh, his conditions got more and more comfortable until uh, he eventually had almost total freedom. And it's really kind of a um, completely surprisingly modern work that is introspective. It tells about his feelings, about his... Uh, he's got some love affairs and <laughs> a very dangerously close brush with a homosexual episode at one point, and And... Um, and then he finally escapes and manages to get back to uh-huh. um, the Ottoman Empire. So I'm working on a tra- uh, translation of that. And then the other project I have is about uh, ethnography. It's about ethnographic writing in Ottoman Turkish. There's this huge scholarly literature about ethnography and ethnographic writing, which is always framed within the context of Western intellectual traditions and Western political expansion and uh, what I'm trying to do is sort of turn that around and explore how curiosity about culture actually develops in a, in a non-western context and, and that's what uh, my research is focusing on right now
0: well that's a good yeah I, I like both of those projects and they remind me of two projects I did I'll talk to you about that in the in uh, in the, in the post interview but uh, well, anyway, anyway I don't want to, to it Yeah, I don't want to take up any more of your time. We've been talking to Giancarlo Casale about the Ottoman Age of Exploration. Giancarlo, thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you so much, Marshall. I I had a a wonderful time, and I hope we can do it again. Okay, all right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Giancarlo Casale about his book, The Ottoman Age of Exploration. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.